Welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our new series in the Book of Acts. And here, Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers are going to discuss the very end of Acts chapter 4 and move into Acts 5. One of the great things they'll discuss along the way is the Joshua typology in the book of Acts, along with a discussion of Barnabas and more. Do be sure to check out those links in the show notes. This week, we started a new video series on the book of James with Rich Lusk. You can find in the show notes a link to that video, and we invite you to become a subscriber to the channel. On that channel, we do release weekly videos on Bible, liturgy, and culture. We've done series on Genesis 1 and 2, Liturgy and Work, and the Psalms. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening to this podcast, and we hope that you enjoy this discussion. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, Jeffrey Myers, and James B. John, discussing Acts chapters 4 and 5. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes is in the background recording, and uh, he will be editing and smoothing things out for uh, your ease of listening. So uh, none of the glitches that we experience during the course of the recording uh, are passed on to you. Uh, We're in the middle of a series on the book of Acts, uh, and today we're going to try to cover several things. We left the tail end of Acts chapter 4 to talk about this week, uh, the introduction of Joseph, also known as Barnabas. And then there's the incident of Ananias and Sapphira, the first part of chapter 5. The apostles are again arrested and and, uh, opposed by the Sanhedrin Uh, in chapter 5. They're uh, taken before the Sanhedrin, and once again, Peter has a chance to preach before them. And uh, there's a uh, discussion following that with Gamaliel. So that whole scene of the Sanhedrin with the apostles Uh, is another part of this, as we have have this escalating combat between the apostles and the Jewish leaders. Uh, Before we dive into those specifics, I wanted to back up a little bit and talk uh, a little bit about the Joshua typology that's running through uh, the book of Acts, and particularly through the early chapters of the book of Acts. And I'm relying uh, heavily here on an essay by Pastor Rich Lusk, who is uh, a Theopolis friend and supporter and uh, has done some teaching for us over the years, an essay that he wrote for a festschrift we did for Jim Jordan a few years ago. Uh, the title of the book is The Glory of Kings. And uh, Rich did a, a, an essay on pointing out parallels between Joshua and Acts, and particularly looking at the question of holy war uh, as it's developed from Old Testament to New Testament. But I think it's particularly helpful as we as we go into chapter 5 to think about the Joshua typology. One of the one of the big things that's happening is that we have this transition from Jesus, who is uh, the leader of Israel. He leads the new Exodus, but we have this transition as he departs from the scene as Moses did and the apostles take over somewhat in the role of Joshua. Jesus doesn't carry out the conquest to the ends of the earth. That's what he sends the apostles to do. Again, they're in the position of Joshua. Jesus uh, sends his spirit on the apostles as Joshua is said to receive the spirit of Moses, and just as Joshua does the miracles of Moses and the signs and wonders of Moses, so the apostles do the signs and wonders of Jesus, and uh, they have that have that uh, parallel again. Uh, one of the things that that uh, does is set up Jerusalem as a kind of initial 
city of conquest, uh, a, a Jericho-like city, as it were, and also sets up for the incident at the beginning of chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira, who are kind of standing in the slot of Achan, who stole holy things from the plunder of Jericho. So I, I just want to lay that out briefly, and that'll set up some of the discussion we want to have. But the, I wanted to get into details by looking at the end of chapter 4. We brought up Joseph Barnabas at the end of chapter 4, but raised questions among ourselves about what that introduction was doing there, why that's placed there, what role he has in the book of Acts. And uh, so uh, we, we left that for this episode. So since you all have had a while to study this, I'm expecting some really, really insightful things about Barnabas. Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've looked at little else all week, Peter. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> it does seem to be a feature of um, Luke's style in Acts. He introduces characters early on as minor characters, and then later on he fills out their characters. So Saul is first introduced to us and as a character in the stoning of Stephen, as a minor character in that context. Stephen is mentioned earlier in chapter six before his story is fleshed out in the chapters that follow um and so minor characters seem to be um or major characters can be introduced as minor characters first and then expanded and i think that's definitely what we see in the case of barnabas yeah i i, I even thought about pursuing that one step further alistair that line of reasoning i mean we're introduced to this guy in verse 36 just with the words thus joseph who is also called barnabas and it may be that he's already been mentioned to us in in chapter one um that's certainly the only joseph mentioned today who is this uh character who, who's also called barsabbas and i mean some of those details actually go quite nicely the name barsabbas means son of the sabbath it's sort of a well-known type of ancient Near Eastern name it would be given to someone who was born on the Sabbath and it still exists in some cultures today e equivalents of that name and so it, it all works out quite well the name Bar, Bar Sabbath then would be a, a thoroughly Jewish name but with a Greek ending like the, the AS at the end of it and so it would fit very well with with a guy who was a Cypriot um, it would also fit well with a Levite um, the Hebrew equivalent to the name is, is Shabbatai, and that in the Old Testament is, is only born by Levites. And so if you had this guy, Barsabbas, who the disciples chose to rename Bar-Navis from sort of Bar-Navi, it, it would all just work very well, I think. As we read a bit more about Barnabas, it seems that he's connected with John Mark too as his cousin. So John Mark being... Uh, Again, his house or his mother's house is the place where they meet to pray as Peter is released from prison in chapter um, 12. So it seems to be, there seem to be a number of people associated with Barnabas who are key figures within the life of the early church. Yeah, th there may be another thing that uh, at least dovetails with what you're saying, James, if, do if it doesn't exactly support it. If Barsabbas is the same uh, Joseph that we have in uh, chapter four, chapter one and chapter four, the same guy, they're being proposed as replacements for Judas. Uh, and we do have a contrast between the Joseph Barna Barnabas in chapter four and Judas. Uh, we have Joseph selling a tract of land. That same term is used for Judas who 
purchases attractive land in the uh, in chapter one, we have that contrast that's built into the two characters that might uh, it, that would again be an additional uh, layer of linkage between the the two Josephs in chapter one and chapter four. But I think that I wanted to also comment on Alistair's point, which is uh, important. We, I honestly have read the book of Acts before. <laughs> I've never preached or taught through it. So I'm, this is the most detailed study I've done it as we're doing this together. And I, I just hadn't thought through exactly what role Barnabas plays in the course of the book. Uh, he is a fairly significant figure in the early uh, mission of uh, Saul, Paul. Uh, and not only that, I think the his Cypriot origin is significant, uh, Cyprus being a kind of transitional place between the Gentile world and Israel geographically and in some ways culturally. He's a Jew from Cyprus, whether that means he's a converted Gentile or some kind of an, an exiled Jew on Cyprus. But Cyprus is a, is a place that becomes a, a source of the Gentile mission. It's people from Cyprus who go to Antioch and speak to Greeks in Antioch, and that's Antioch becomes the ascending church for the for the Gentile mission. So we have this, uh, Joseph is linked up, uh, he's, he's a, a kind of Jew-Gentile in one man who's an appropriate figure for that transition over to the, the mission of Paul. Yeah, Cyprus in chapter 13 is the transition from um, uh, Judea into the Gentile nations, as you mentioned. It's where Saul and Barnabas go and where Saul gets his name changed. Um, and yeah, so that's, I was going to mention that as well. One other just brief point here is he's a Levite. Um, and this whole section here, this first section in Acts from Acts 2 to Acts 6, uh, has a very priestly, uh, feel to it, um, content. Um, I'll mention that in a little bit when we get into chapter five. Um, so it's significant that Luke points out that he's a Levite. So he's one of the, He's one of the teachers, he's one of the uh, caretakers for um, Israel, and he's now going to be also a teacher and a caretaker for uh, the church. Mm. Luke often also juxtaposes characters. So we see the juxtaposition of Peter and Herod, for instance, in chapter 12, or the juxtaposition of um, Saul and um Elymas the sorcerer in chapter 13 or the juxtaposition of Simon the sorcerer and Peter and here I think there's the introduction of Barnabas as a juxtaposition to the characters that follow in chapter 5 Ananias mm. and Sapphira right obviously the uh, the contrast in the way that they're handling their land but before we before we leave Barnabas I wonder a couple of questions for your response if if you're thinking in terms of a Joshua typology does Barnabas, as a somebody of Cypriot, uh, Cypriot origin, function as a Gentile, uh, like a, a Rahab that's brought into the community? Is that would that fit with the movement of the book? And and also, I wonder if the with with the peculiar relationship that Levites have to the land, is that in any way uh, rumbling in the background here with uh, the emphasis on Joseph the Levite, who possesses attractive land but then uh, gives it up? and lays it at the apostles' feet. I wonder if there's a connection there with the Levites who are, they live in cities and they have fields around the cities, but they're, they're not, uh, they don't receive an inheritance within the land as the other tribes do. 
I have no response to that. I think that's what you're telling me. (laughs) (laughs) I hear it's Joe versus the volcano. I have no response to that. All right, we'll just leave that dangling. Um, Jeff, you you mentioned uh, priestly stuff going on in chapter five. Do you want to elaborate on that? Um, well, I think we'll we'll get to that when the apostles are arrested in verse seventeen and following. What I was referring to is just the Jerusalem centered character of this these first chapters here, and now, of course, we're going to transition to Ananias and Sapphira and what happens to them at the apostles' feet. And just the footstool. Do you want to move into that right now, or, or um, yeah, sure, or what? Okay, so we have Ananias and Sapphira here who die immediately, and you know, contrary to popular opinion, it's, there's not a lot of lethal judgments like this in the Bible. It doesn't happen very often, um, especially someone who just is pretty much executed instantly, supernaturally. But it does happen with regard to God's sacred space, with regard to performing a sacrilege in God's presence, if you will. And the fascinating thing about this is that now God's presence is located at the apostles' feet. The footstool of Yahweh has been transferred from the ark and from the temple. And we know that's the case, First Chronicles 28 and Psalm 99 and Psalm, I think it's 135 talk about this, about the temple and the ark being the footstool of Yahweh. So now what happens is you have the apostles' feet being the place where you bring tribute. So the Lord is building up this new temple with the spoils of the old as people sell off their property in Jerusalem so that this wealth is transferred to the church and the church are the new stewards of the kingdom. And they're also then new priesthood, the new Levites, the new teachers and caretakers of the church. And so that the sacrilege now is associated not so much with the Jewish temple, but with the church. Yeah. R- related to some of those points, Jeff, which, which I, I really like, I think there's a sort of complexity here in this chapter to the way in which things are made holy which i haven't quite got my head around but i I found the whole introduction with jericho very helpful and we could take that further in some respects in acts three for instance as the gospel goes forth in its first city really jerusalem we've got two witnesses peter and john who are sent through a gate and connected with silver and, and gold in various ways and obviously Ananias as, as you say and, and Sapphira take this Achan like role but at the same time there's there's like a, a complexity to it so it, it's not like the land as it were is 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 holy um it, it's almost the opposite so at the end of chapter four um these these things are in common like in verse 32 people have things in common and in chapter five when peter talks about ananias and sapphira's sin he he says you know verse four while it remained unsold wasn't it your own and after it was sold wasn't it at your disposal and and so there isn't the sense in which this is like holy and out of bounds It, it was free to ananias and sapphira to do 
what they wanted with. But um, obviously, the, what they did do with it was dishonest. And so, as I say, I haven't got the whole thing sort of together, but I think there's this sort of complexity to the way in which things can be dedicated to the Lord and are the Lord's possession. But at the same time, they're common and there's not this same sense of obligation to the whole thing. There are a couple of things that um, don't answer those questions, but I think relevant to the situation. One is, I think we, we brought this up in one of the previous episodes, I, the fact that the Spirit has come and indwelt the people means that they are they are now holy space. I think particularly, as Jeff has said, you've got the feet of the apostles that uh, represent some kind of center of the holy space that is the the temple of the Spirit. So, to say something is in common, but it's it's common, it's it's the communion of the holy ones. It's communion of saints. And so the common property that the saints have is uh, dedicated to the Lord. It's holy property. And that, that might not be the best way to say it, but I think that the fact that they're now uh, participating in the spirit and therefore holy ones is, is relevant to how that works. The other thing that I, I had the same kinds of questions about chapter five, it seems like it's definitely different from Achan. Something is dedicated to the Lord and he takes it away. This is theirs to give, and they withhold part of it. But that seems to imply that the intention to devote it to the Lord and devote it to the communion, to community of the saints, has a kind of votive force. So the, the fact that they're intending to do that and act like they're doing that but don't means that what they're holding back is maybe that's the sacrilege that they're holding something back. That but it's the intention to it's the intention to devote it that takes on this dedicatory kind of force yeah that brings up an interesting parallel with rahab doesn't it she you could say tells a lie but the the purpose there is is good and she deceives god's enemy and and here is it's very much the opposite isn't it 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 also emphasizes the seriousness of the sin i mean we kind of have to read into the text a, a little bit but it seems basically Ananias's sin is he's making his worship and himself look a little bit better than he is, basically. Mm. That seems to be the sin. And, you know, if you guys haven't done that from time to time, then I certainly have. And it just emphasizes the the, the failure of, of that method of, of trying to portray ourselves. Mm. I wonder whether looking at Deuteronomy 26 and the tithe of the third year might help a bit because there are two parts to that. First of all, you pay the tithe and you give the tithe to um, the various parties that it's supposed to be given to. But there's also this um, statement that has mm. to go with that. And the statement is one where they say, you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten of the tithe while I was in mourning, or removed any of it while I was unclean, or offered any of it to the dead. I have obeyed the voice of my the Lord my God. I have done according to all that you have commanded me. And that statement, although this is not the tithe of the third year, it does have that more votive character to it. It seems that it's the failure to make a truthful statement like that, which is an important part of the offering that is the sin of Ananias and mm -hmm. later Sapphira. Yeah, that's helpful. And I, I think that, that fits with the way that um, Peter rebukes Ananias. He doesn't 
as uh, James pointed out, as far as the property is concerned, he treats it as it as if it's under Anias's control until he until he hands it over. But what he is charging him with is lying to the Holy Spirit. The sacrilege is more a sacrilege against it's it's more a violation of the Spirit himself, the Spirit who Ananias is supposed to share in. Uh, so yeah, the lie is what's focused on rather than the disposal property per se. Hmm. Another point of contact with the Old Testament, which this uh, introduction to chapter five brought to my mind, is uh, Jeroboam's story at the outset of his reign in um, in one Kings. 14 his child is ill and so he says to his wife disguise yourself and go and see um ahijah the prophet but then obviously the lord tells ahijah what's happened and there's that interesting detail is when ahijah um heard her feet outside the door Mm -hmm. um he knew it was her and and so he says to her you know your your child will die and and there's exactly the same sense of, of of this here there is an attempt to to deceive and to disguise and then there is the the detail with the the feet outside the door and, and the woman's feet are heard and and it, it seems that kind of in jeroboam's story he's trying to cling on to his kingdom he, he he wants his child to live to perpetuate his dynasty and and so forth but he will lose it because of his act of deception and, and that's what's going on here so peter very much has the authority of, of god's voice and of the old testament prophets and these people will will lose their place in in god's kingdom tragically um by trying to keep hold of it mm-hmm. yeah a further possible connection that matt colvin first alerted me to several years back is with the story of rechab and Baana in um second samuel chapter four where after the rebellion of ishbosheth they kill ishbosheth and bring his head to David, presuming that David would praise them. And he observes that it takes place at the beginning of a new administration. Both of the culprits think that they're going to be praised for what they have done and find that that's not actually the case. In both cases, there is this dramatic ignorance that they do not realize what's going to take place. And in both cases, it's the young men that take the bodies out at the end. And that connection might be a further one alongside the Achan and the Jeroboam connections that are mm. worth exploring. Um, Alistair mentioned earlier the uh, connection with Barnabas or the uh, juxtaposition of Barnabas and Anasaphira. And it certainly seems to be the case that these two are leaders in the church. Um, and so we probably, I mean, I, I've always thought that we have some kind of judgment here against uh, being f- pharisaical leaders in the new church mm. um so they appear to want to be um under want to be thought of as as righteous uh, but they're actually self-righteous deceivers um so you know, you know if you look at luke all the gospels really but luke too it's just there's this emphasis on the disciples not being like uh, the pharisees you know meet the old boss uh, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Pharisees love to walk around, you know, looking for the accolades of all the people. They're whitewashed walls. They talk 
they talk about righteousness, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And, you know, Jesus saying, beware of practicing your righteousness for other people in order to be seen by them. Um, when you give to the needy, don't sound a trumpet. When you pray, don't like be like the hypocrites. So maybe one of the one of the lessons here, translation to today's churches, you know, run run the self-righteous deceivers out of the church and have no regrets about it because they're dangerous. That, that seems to be the case here that Ananias and Sapphira are, are pharisaical in their leadership and um, the apostles are going to have none of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think another dimension of the pastoral uh, import is uh, up to this point, the apostles has, have been opposed by the Jewish leaders, the the threat has been external to the church, and the church has been looking pretty good mm-hmm. I and mean, pretty ideal. Everyone devoted to the mm-hmm. apostles' teaching, everyone mm-hmm. breaking bread together, people selling, and then all of a sudden you have this crisis within the church, and you realize there's actually two fronts uh, that the apostles have to uh, be alert to. It's not just the dangers that are coming from outside, but also the dangers within. Uh, which is, uh, you know, you could go back to the book of Joshua and see the same kind of dynamics. They have enemies outside, but it's Achan within that causes them to lose at AI. Uh, they have, uh, Moses has uh, Amalekites uh, attacking the rear guard, but they have grumblers and complainers within that uh, bring the Lord's wrath against them. So there's the, there's the idyllic kind of church that you have in the first few chapters is whatever false impression we have about that is is being punctured by this event and others in, in Acts. There's there's a lot of internal conflicts within the church over the course of Acts. I wonder whether we should also see the beginning of the ministry of the tabernacle in view here. There's a sense of God's holiness and dwelling among his people and some people just not realizing how serious this is and what it means to have the presence of God in your midst and Nadab and Abihu offering um, strange fire to the Lord um, that they are destroyed as a result of that false offering and the Israelites realize just how serious it is and ask for the Levites to go in their place it's not quite happening in the same way here but the people are afraid of what it means to have God dwelling in the midst of his people and his holiness and the judgment that that entails for those who are unfaithful. Right. Fear, fear among people in the church and fear uh, among those outside as well. So uh, yeah, the, the tabernacle would be one root of that. Uh, I think the, the fact that fear falls on those who hear about it outside the church is also again, a, a kind of Joshua overtone. Uh, here's this new conqueror coming into Jerusalem and uh, obviously there's power there. One of the things that strikes me too is the the uh, power that Peter has. Uh, a pronounced sentence, and his his words are effective. They're performative. It's a performative judgment. But he also has the discernment to see that Satan has filled Ananias's heart in verse three, and uh, obviously in verse nine. There's a more uh, there's more external evidence, but in verse three he has this kind of uh, divine insight into uh, what's going on in Ananias's heart and mind, which again is a shows the the authority and power that the apostles are exercising in the spirit here. Yeah, it parallels, I guess, the way in which Jesus discerns a satanic element in Peter's statement to him, doesn't it? Yes, right. Well, maybe we can move on to the next section of uh, chapter uh, uh, chapter 5. Uh, we have this, I don't want to call it an interlude, but we have this description in verses 12 through 16 of the apostles' teaching in Jerusalem. They're 
uh, together with one accord in Solomon's portico, as we discussed in a previous episode, but also describes the signs and wonders they're doing, which are similar to those that Jesus did during his ministry. But as Jesus told his apostles, they're going to do greater things than he, he did. And one of the themes of Acts is to show the apostles doing things that are a level of miraculousness beyond what Jesus did. Jesus healed people with his touch. Peter heals people with his shadow. He doesn't even have to touch them in verse 15. So uh, they're, they're carrying on Jesus' ministry, but uh, by the power of the Spirit, they're doing things that even Jesus, uh, they're doing it by the power of Jesus, but doing things that even Jesus didn't, didn't do. In verse 13, the people are said to hold them in high esteem. So these actions seem very much to establish Peter and the apostles' authority. And I wonder if the image of a portico, you know, a, a something supported by a mat of pillars, is, is meant to bring that idea of building and of the establishment of a new authority to mind. I think in a previous uh, podcast, Peter, you mentioned Acts 2 and the allusions there to Hannah and Eli, and just as um, Hannah's godliness is mistaken for drunkenness by Eli, there is that same thing going on in, in chapter two. And there Hannah talks about the way in which pillars are going to be mm. brought down and, and shake. Eli is going to be deposed. And um, I, w- I wonder if that's happening here. We're having Galatians, um, James and Cephas and John, it said they, they seem to be pillars. And I wonder if that's what's going on here, a, a new basis and a new form of authority is being uh, established as the old pillars, the pillars of the old guard are, are coming down. Mm. Well, that, that definitely fits with what happens immediately after this paragraph where um, the uh, high priest and the Sadducees are filled with, with uh, jealousy. So they're, um, they recognize that uh, things are changing and that the apostles have this power and authority and respect the people and it pretty much drives the rest of the chapter in terms of how uh, the authorities are dealing with uh, with Peter and with the other apostles. They just want them to stop uh, this, get rid of them, so that uh, they can go back to their um, their their authority over the people. Mm. Yeah, and again, it's uh, following in the following the pattern of Jesus. Their lives are being conformed by the Spirit to the life of Jesus. They're performing miracles like Jesus. They're preaching like Jesus. And they're persecuted like Jesus, which is what Jesus said would happen happen to them. Uh, we've been looking at, uh, in previous episodes, we've been looking at the intensification of the opposition to the apostles. And I think we, we moved to a new stage here. Um, they're put in prison. They've been held in prison overnight once before, but they're put in prison. At the end of this incident, they're flogged and set free. So there's actual corporal punishment but at the same time there's a kind of intensification of uh, the the dramatic character of the apostles power uh, they're put in put into the uh, into the prison and in a kind of passover or resurrection event in the middle of the night an angel comes and lets them out the resurrection power of jesus springs them from prison and uh, there's a kind of comical note here when the council is, is gathering and wanting to confront the apostles about their teaching. And so they <laughs> send the card to bring them up from the prison. And, uh, well, they're not there, but we heard that they're out preaching again in the temple. It's hard to maintain authority when uh, 
a show of authority when you can't even keep people in confinement. <laughs> wow. It's kind of like it's kind of like the Roman, the Romans trying to keep Jesus confined in a tomb. If you if you can't even keep a guy confined in a tomb, then you know your power is pretty limited. That's a that's a good comment uh, or observation, Peter. There's there's are comic elements to this whole section here, um, especially with regard to resurrection. Resurrection language is used all through here. Even in verse 17, the high priest rose up. Um, and then when you get to Gamaliel's speech, um, uh, he's a teacher of the law, verse 34. And he rose up and gave orders. And then he talks about how these uh, previous false messiahs, uh, Theodos rose up, and then they people killed him. And Judas the Galilean rose up. Hmm. Um, there's, it, it's it's fascinating just to to see how this plays out. Is this passage is all about resurrection and new life, but um, false and true, the the real and the fake. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a, a whole um, there's a real current of unstoppability to all the events of Acts, really. But as you say. Jeff, it's stressed in Acts how the grave couldn't keep Jesus, and that becomes a real theme of the apostolic preaching that death couldn't hold him. And a similar thing goes on then with the prisons, doesn't it? The the prison bars can't keep the apostles from preaching about new life. And I was struck really by verse 20 by the explicit syntax of it you know, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of, of this life, mm. which just is a fascinating turn of phrase. I think in previous podcasts, we mentioned how Jesus is the author of life and how what they were preaching was the resurrection and how it didn't just have the the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, but had, had the idea of, of preaching a new life and a, and a new resurrected world and, and world order. And that, seems to be very present here mm. and notice too that they they do this at daybreak so mm. there's a new day um, <laughs> they come from darkness to light from death to resurrection as a result of the angelic uh, rescue here and one other thing about that too um, is it's here an angel of the lord appears there's not a lot of angels that appear in the book of acts but here at the end of this section of Acts, when we're about to transition to a, out of Jerusalem into uh, Judea and Samaria, you have an angel appear that's going to uh, basically provide an exodus for the apostles out of prison. And the angel authorizes the apostles now as the true teachers of Israel. Uh, they are the priests. They are the Levites. They are given the authority to go out and uh, teach and instruct God's people. And that's what they do. And now the Pharisees and the high priests and the Sadducees no longer have the authorization to be the official teachers of Israel. They seem to have a, a great concern to ensure that the blood of Christ is not put upon them. Um, the concern about the teaching of the apostles is focused upon the way that the blood of Christ is being placed upon their shoulders. And in the Gospel of Matthew, I think also in the book of Acts, there is this concern to 
manipulate anything that might connect them with that blood to resist its contagion and its um, coming upon them. And yet it fails. And and think Judas's death, the money involved with the betrayal and the use of that money for a field, all of these things are part of that attempt to escape the power of Christ's blood being placed upon them and the guilt that mm. comes with that. Yeah. That's very explicit in verse 28, isn't it? When you talk about filling Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I'm, I'm struck by, I guess, the statement in Matthew where the people say, his blood be upon us and upon our children's children. And then Peter's offer of forgiveness in Acts 2 picks up that in saying the promise is for your children and for your children's children. So there is forgiveness offered absolution is is there and israel needn't be under this cloud of, of judgment um but we do see tragically as, as the chapters unfold that yeah that that blood does come upon them and stephen will refer to this too at the end of his sermons what what leads to his uh, execution when he accuses them of killing the righteous one betraying and murdering him yeah, I think James. It's uh, James is right. It's important to recognize that the offer of uh, a deliverance from the from that blood, or maybe a, a a different kind of application of that blood, that's open and explicitly for Israel. Verse thirty one. Uh, again, Peter preaches a an accusatory kind of gospel sermon, uh, blaming them for hanging Jesus on the cross, and uh, they are indeed trying to bring uh, Jesus' blood on them on the Jewish leaders. But verse 31 says that God has exalted him to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Uh, we saw this last time too, I think, uh, where, or a couple couple episodes ago where the, Peter says that the uh, it's preached first to you, to you first, God raised up his servant. That's at the end of chapter three. And here again, Israel is a particular focus of this offer of forgiveness and repentance. Uh, they can be cleansed of this, and uh, the blood of Jesus can become a cleansing blood rather than a, an accusing blood if they'll turn from it. Back in chapter 3, we read that there was about 5,000 men among them, presumably many more if you add women and children. And here we see many more are being added. How large a movement would this be relative to the population of Jerusalem at the time? It seems to me it would be fairly significant movement uh, at least double digit percentage of the population um, suddenly moving to this new teaching and I can imagine just how much of a threat that would mm -hmm. be to the leaders. Do any of you have any thoughts or research that you've done upon the population of Jerusalem at the time and how this would have been what size of movement the early church would have been relative to that? <sighs> It's very hard because you get quite different answers if you ask the question archaeologically versus via textual sources, Josephus, for instance. And you, you get very much higher numbers from the written sources, which uh, I'm inclined to go more with, really. I, I would guess we, we could be over 100,000 or something. Um, but it's, it's all, I think it's difficult to say. One thing that does strike me in verse 16, for instance, there is um, gathering from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick, uh, those with unclean spirits. And 
what was happening at the moment very much is the gospel is spreading by people coming to jerusalem and i suppose something that strikes me as interesting in what you're saying anisteria is that that has a, a limit to it there's only so much that the kingdom of god can grow if everyone has got to come to jerusalem in in order to be blessed and it just gives me the sense that the, these are great and beautiful things which are happening but they've only got a limited shelf life this can't be the model for the church hmm Alistair, that question you asked probably is is uh, answered in uh, Witherington's book, his commentary on the Acts of the Apostles, a socio-rhetorical commentary. I found him to have lots of um, uh, interesting research on the, answering those kinds of questions. Well, if we take uh, take James's uh, estimate, I, I don't know where where you said you got got that a hundred thousand. Is that Josephus, James? I mean, yeah, I think Josephus has, I think, 600,000 in Jerusalem at the time of the Roman War. Now, I mean, Josephus' numbers do seem to be high to me, but I think, yeah, but I think I think we probably should go with numbers higher than some archaeologists have put the estimate. And so, I mean, some have suggested maybe only 20,000 which seems very yeah, very yeah ex- exactly that's, that's why i'm thinking somewhere between the two is is probably going to be the answer yeah well what we have so far is uh, 3000 of pentecost another 5000 in chapter 6 which we'll look at in the next episode the word of god is spreading and it's increasing greatly a great number of priests were becoming obedient to the faith so and there then there are references uh, scattered throughout acts about uh, additional people uh, both uh, jews and gentiles that are coming in so we have some estimate you well with just one of the first few chapters we have explicitly nearly ten thousand people and then there are references to many more that are not numbered so yeah it does seem like a very significant movement and enough just in sheer numerical terms to to shake the leader's um, authority if you have people that are now listening to the apostles, and as Jeff said, if you have people who are transferring their, you know, their ears are now directed to the apostles rather than to the Sadducees and Pharisees, then uh, that's a disturbing thing. You always want to protect your turf when you see uh, change coming. That's the instinct. Okay, I did find, I did find this answer. So here, this is from Witherington. The population of Jerusalem at feast time was quite large perhaps even as high as 180,000 to 200,000. And interestingly enough, careful estimates have shown that the temple precincts could even accommodate such a large crowd. So, um, but that's, that's his estimate of how many people were there during the feast time, 200,000. Any estimate of the, the the day-to-day population? Yeah. Not finding that yet. So, yeah. That's something for next time. Another research project for for a, a future. I'll episode. do it. I'll look for it. Yeah. Uh, what do you all think about uh, the the last part of chapter five with Gamaliel's intervention uh, in the Sanhedrin? Uh, it's it's uh, interesting. It comes on the heels of verse thirty three, which says which says that after Peter preaches and accuses them, they're cut to the quick, but are intending to slay them. So there's as at Pentecost, there's an there's a response, but it's not a repentant response. And then Gamaliel calms things down with his counsel. There are t- 
two perspectives on this, and I'm sure you guys have uh, seen this, whether Gamaliel is supportive uh, in a, you know, in a mild kind of way, or whether it's he's mocking. And the argument that he's mocking seems better to me. Um, you know, he has previously participated in some of the awful decisions resulting in Jesus flogging and death. Peter reminds them of this in verse 30. Um, and then he gives these examples of Theodos and Judas the Galilean, basically to reduce Jesus to the level of phony pol a phony political prophet. Um, and he appears to mock the prophetic ministry and the resurrection of Jesus. He uses this language of resurrection in a sarcastic kind of belittering way. So the, the order of resurrection and death, in each case that Gamaliel cites, follows the order of Peter's accusation. Jesus rose again, even though you killed him. But these guys, these other guys, rise up and are killed and their followers disperse. And it seems like, you know, a, a subtle kind of disingenuous, deceptive way, maybe even a great example of pharisaical hypocrisy and doublespeak. So unrepentant Gamaliel doesn't buy the resurrection of Jesus, doesn't fear the Lord, doesn't expect the apostles to succeed, and his verdict is, is a cynical one. That's that's the argument that Gamaliel's mocking, and it seems to work. We later learn that Paul was a person who learnt at the feet of Gamaliel in chapter 22, and Paul certainly had a very hostile view to the early church, and probably or at least it's likely that he is the source for this particular description of Gamaliel's statement. Um, also, I, there's, a, there's an ominous sense when you read about Judas the Galilean, you, you think about what happened next in Israel's history. Judas's movement wasn't quite dead yet, um, and it would lead to pretty devastating consequences for the nation. Oh, yeah, you mean the rebellion against Rome. Yeah, absolutely. What was your question, Peter? Yeah, so uh, you're saying that uh, the mockery, part of the mockery is Gamaliel saying, in effect, well, we, we've, we've heard about resurrections before. This guy rose up, and this guy yeah. rose up, and now Jesus rose up. Is that, the, is that part of the force of the mockery? Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Right. Interesting. I wasn't familiar with those arguments before about viewing Gamaliel in a more mocking tone, but one thing it does bring out is that here and later the authorities are going to work in in different ways at times for instance paul is going to be helped by the authorities and at times he's not going to be and there, there's some indication of that even in this sense that the authority is going to be at least superficially a, a two-edged sword as far as the the gospel is concerned what, however we take gamaliel's comments i think the uh, the effect of it is certainly to give to to uh, give some space for the apostles, and I think one of the one of the things we're seeing we see throughout Acts as uh, as James was saying is that you have this unstoppable character to the church. So Gamaliel may be uh, mocking the church, but he he also puts off the the intention to to kill the to kill the apostles that verse thirty three mentions, and this time at least the Sanhedrin is satisfied with a flogging and another another warning they've given them warnings before this time this is the first time they've actually beaten them but now they're uh they're backing up their warnings with a beating but that's not stopping them either because the apostles go away this is another source of joy every time they come before the sanhedrin it's a sort it's a time to 
testify to Jesus before the Sanhedrin to call the Sanhedrin to repentance. If the Sanhedrin reacts by beating them, well, that's good too, because that means that they're suffering shame for the name of Jesus. They're worthy to share in his sufferings, uh, and they go right on doing what they're doing. So, uh, this truly is an unstoppable movement. There's nothing that uh, nothing that can frustrate them, nothing that isn't a, a fresh opportunity to participate in the work of Jesus. Notice, too, the emphasis on the name in verse 41 and also in verse 40. And back in verse 28, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name. That goes back to Acts chapter 4 as well, where it's there's no other name given among men by which we can be delivered. So that this name uh, of Jesus, the name of Jesus, the Messiah, is now replacing the name of Yahweh or uh, fulfilling the name of Yahweh. Yahweh, of course, is the memorial, the rescue name, the name that you call out when you're in trouble. Uh, it's the name that's associated with the temple, uh, where the name of the Lord rests on his temple. But now there's a new temple, there's a new people, there's a new house, it's the, it's the people of God, and a new name. And the apostles are the new priests and guardians and, of this name, and they proclaim it. So, again, all, all of this is leading us to Acts chapter 7, where finally the temple is said to be just like another pagan temple by Stephen. He's killed, and then everybody is dispersed out of Jerusalem, because Jerusalem now and the temple is no longer the holy city. The temple has no power. It's impotent. And you're going to be, everybody's going to be forced into a new situation. And it's all because of the new thing that God's doing, the new life, the new name, uh, the Messiah. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.